0: Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Uclus, and today I'm joined by my friend, Ben Ross. In this conversation, Ben and I discuss how our respective life's journeys have intersected with the psychedelic plant medicine ayahuasca, and how our spiritual journeys have been impacted by the lessons ayahuasca has taught. From there, we discuss Alan Watts' advice to hang up the phone after answering the call from psychedelics and how to follow the heart's intuition in determining which Dharma door you step through. We then dive into discussions on the perennial philosophy, free will, and determinism. We later discuss the tension between logic and intuition in both the scientific community at large and within our own psyches. Also, Ben was kind enough to provide a song for today's episode, so please check out his original music, Hyperspace Master, in the last three and a half minutes of the episode please enjoy. Ben, how are you doing this evening?
1: Doing great, Jordan. Good to see you.
0: Good to see you as well. Ben, you and I have had a lot of interesting overlaps in our lives. And so I was really excited to get to host this discussion with you tonight. And one of those places where we've had some meaningful overlap is in our exploration of the plant medicine ayahuasca. And so this is something that I think a lot of people are learning more about and it's coming a little bit more into the mainstream, but still people have a lot of questions about it. And so I thought it could be Exciting to get together with you and, and spend a little bit of time just discussing our journeys with ayahuasca.
1: Awesome. I, I look forward to it, and it's certainly the plant medicines, the plant teachers are, are one of my favorite topics, so excited to uh, see what we get into.
0: Fantastic. So to kick things off, Ben, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: All right. That's an interesting Interesting question. Of even, (laughs) I'm sure we'll get into the self and the the many layers of the self. But to start on kind of the mundane personal mythology, might be useful background. I had a phase of life chasing the the academic achievement ladder, as I as I say, of a a bachelor's, master's, and PhD, all in engineering fields, uh, and did a postdoc as well at, at UC Berkeley. And then, you know, I kind of saw saw where that ladder led, and was ready for a different a different ladder to climb. And so spent another decade, roughly the last 10 years, chasing more of the capitalistic achievement ladder, starting, started several companies. A few of those companies sold in the last year or so. And so climbed that ladder and saw saw that, you know, in a sense all ladders lead to lead to nowhere. But, you know, along the way, was introduced to plant medicines and just the immense and profound teaching there. And in, in the current phase of phase of life, I'm, I'm more interested in in that sort of healing and thinking about how we make healing in general through all the various modalities that are available accessible to more people and really spread that energy around around the world as much as we can.
0: That's beautiful, and it's interesting you talk about first climbing that academic achievement ladder and then that entrepreneurship achievement ladder, and I certainly follow a very similar path and that's what, what drives that, you know, where does that come from for me was a big part of my exploration on ayahuasca. So it'll be interesting to get your thoughts as we get further into that discussion. Mm. And so as you talk about your experiences with plant medicine, when, when was your first, or or I guess, how did you first decide that you wanted to experiment with plant medicines?
1: Yeah, it came Fairly later in a journey, I was never much of an, an experimental person. In the way in say college or my early twenties, like like many other folks are, I was kind of a a straight edge. You know, trained as an engineer, saw the world through very engineering colored glasses, which is is a valuable way to see the world. But I, it was really roughly when I turned thirty. Around then, I had enough curiosity to to really try cannabis for the first time. And here in California, it was medical marijuana was the at that state. So I got a card and I had some experiments with that plant. And in a way, that was a first introduction to what we might call non-ordinary states of consciousness, right? Realizing that like, wow, there's actually other ways to perceive the world and, and perceive myself and place in the world. And so that that really was an aha, like a wow moment. There, there's more, there's more here than I thought. And so that took me down the path that if you fast forward roughly a year or so later, I went to Peru and ended up on a retreat, an ayahuasca retreat. And that was really an introduction into the the grandmother, the the really the the more powerful plant teacher, and had a very profound experience there. And have since continued going down that path and learning from that plant as well as other plants.
0: And did you go to Peru specifically to go on that retreat?
1: No, it was actually a kind of a first vacation. I was early in a startup that had t- roughly, I don't know, two or three years into it. It had pretty much not taken a day off. As you, When you start a project like that, it really is kind of an all-encompassing. So it was a fine like, all right, I'm going to take a breath and take a few weeks. And a friend had mentioned ayahuasca and I, I knew very little about it. There was at some some curiosity and had maybe heard of it once or twice, but it, it felt like something worth exploring. There's kind of this pull toward like, all right, let's let's try this. And so the trip wasn't planned around it. It was like, okay, let let's explore this while the opportunity arises. And there's kind of a a weird mystery in how the plants like that can come to you when you're ready for them you know if if someone had mentioned ayahuasca to me a few years earlier it would have just gone right over my head it, it wouldn't wouldn't have entered one ear and <laughs> and remained there so it really is it's interesting how you're able to receive that message at, at a certain time in life
0: yeah that is really interesting and so what was the retreat like what was the experience leading up to the ayahuasca and then obviously well, let's get into the experience itself
1: yeah it was a perfect retreat, and there's you know you'll you'll read and hear stories about just a, a wide variety of different retreat centers and there's certainly fear out there about ones that that maybe feel more dangerous or aren't comfortable for westerners and you know it's kind of a whole spectrum and, and we can talk about that as well but this was a center that was very very western friendly and had a you know a medical nurse on staff they are like taking your blood pressure ahead of time and there's a trained counselor therapist as well, so it felt like a very safe a safe container, which is really important because you're entering into a place where you're very vulnerable and and you want to be safe to be vulnerable, to let down all of the, the guards, the, the guardian energies that we normally have in the world to really enter into the richness of, of the space. And there were a few, a, a couple of different shaman from different traditions or tribes from Peru that, that were there. And they sing uh, what are called Icaros or might be translated somewhat as as like a power song, a song that that has a certain power to guide you through the the vastness of the ayahuasca space. So that was in, in a few words, the the kind of container that was my first introduction.
0: And what is the environment like of that retreat being in the Amazonian rainforest? The first one I went on was actually in what's called the
1: Sacred Valley of Peru. So it's more a mountainous terrain. It's interesting because ayahuasca and working with that plant and other plants is something that's been done for thousands of years across a lot of South America. And they're different, different tribes, different traditions, have different different ways of working with the plants. And you slowly learn learn more and visit different centers or work with different facilitators, different shamans. Well, they don't. They don't use that word traditionally. You kind of get a sense of just the different ways that space can be held. Um, so, you know, I, I've since gone to the rainforest, and it's, it's incredibly intense. Just the the amount of life energy that is in a rainforest is wild. There's you can take like a square foot of space, and there'll just be a huge an insect the size of your face, and a frog, <laughs> and a, a giant plant, and there's just so much life. That it's kind of overwhelming for me at least. <laughs> it's it's wild how much energy there is, versus uh, that the Sacred Valley is a little it's not so different from the hills of California um, where where I live now, where there's it's it's v- very beautiful, but it's a little bit less intense. Just life energy per square meter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Before we get into the ceremony in the Sacred Valley. Could you explain to listeners, what is ayahuasca? Yeah,
1: good question. And there's lots of um, misunderstanding or misconception because the word ayahuasca could really be used three different ways. There is is a specific plant, a vine, that is called ayahuasca. However, the brew that is traditionally called ayahuasca and, and has this psychedelic or very strong effect is a combination of that plant with another plant, and there's several other plants that can be used as that kind of second plant. So essentially, one plant is a DMT-containing plant, and another plant, which is the ayahuasca vine in this case, is, not to get too deep into the chemistry, but is an MAOI inhibitor that, that will Enable your body to absorb DMT. If you just drink or eat DMT, your body will quickly dissolve it or degrade it into some other chemical that isn't going to give you a psychedelic or a spiritual or enhanced experience. And so the, it's the, the combination of these two plants. However, we can think more generally as about ayahuasca's taking that we need to have MAOI in some DMT containing plant. And there's actually a, a lot of different plants that we could combine to get that effect. And actually every living thing, as far as we know, contains DMT. It's a very kind of fundamental molecule to life, which is actually really interesting and is unique among the the psychedelic or entheogenic, as we might say, compounds. So really there's a lot of different combinations that can be used depending on where you go. But that's kind of a a quick summary is two plants, an MAOI and a DMT-containing plant.
0: That's really helpful context, and it's it's great, I think, for listeners too. Because to your point, people I th- I think have this conception of ayahuasca just being this brewer or mixture that was consumed in Peru and South America. But there's a lot of evidence from around the world and other areas, like acacia trees being used in in Egypt, where it's not an isolated event just in South America.
1: Yeah, and and especially today. There's the zoomed out view of the world of 10,000, multi-10,000 10, years, which is civilizations all over the world have been working with plants like ayahuasca or like magic mushrooms or sacred mushrooms and many others for thousands and thousands of years. And our culture has been kind of a weird bubble that has very clearly put a ban around these kinds of substances and this collective fear around them for various reasons in various history. And so now we're in this wave of resurgence back to that state where people are, are now interested in kind of connecting with, with the plants as teachers and guides in, in the way that humans have been doing for a long time. And so as more and more of that knowledge is becoming available, it makes sense that if you live in North America or you live in Europe, as we're talking about accessibility, how do we work with plants that grow indigenous to these places and are representative of our time and place? instead of going and trying to either copy and paste a culture or try and import medicine from a place where there's limited supply and the people there don't necessarily want to be exporting it and having their culture taken out to the rest of the world. So there's multiple dimensions here, but I think it's an interesting question to play with. How do we do this in a way that is sustainable and honors the tradition and also honors our own time and place?
0: And then you have to add in the factor of not only... How do we honor these traditions? How do we handle all these capitalistic enterprises that are going to be coming in and, and trying to build an enterprise out of psychedelics as well?
1: Yeah, exactly. That is a very interesting layer. And uh, <laughs> we, should, we should refer people to our other podcast where we yeah. went into that in some detail instead of talking about capitalism again for, <laughs> for the next hour. But yeah, we, we had an interesting conversation on your other podcast uh, a few months ago where we really dug into that in, in some yeah. detail.
0: Yep. So check that one out on uh, Cannabis Unlocked. That was a great interview as well. So it's fun to, fun to get to do this interview with you here. Obviously, a lot of similar themes to both, but a little bit of a more introspective bent here, I'd say. So with that in mind, let's go back to Sacred Valley. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Could you walk us through what that ceremony was like the first night?
1: Yeah, well, I can try. <laughs> I'm aware that listening to what we might call trip reports, as they're commonly called, or just kind of a relation of an experience with plants or with any psychedelic, is kind of like listening to, to a dream, someone's dream, where like it gets boring and unrelatable very quickly. <laughs> you know, oh, there was this person and it was my mom and it was also you, and then they turn, you know, <laughs> it very quickly uh, degrades into something that's unrelatable. But in a quick summary, I could say that the first hour or In earth time, an hour was maybe one of the most difficult hours of my life, just extreme physically, a lot of pain and just overwhelming in terms of the amount of, we could say like drinking through a fire hose, like the amount of thoughts and images and feelings. If you think of the knob of discomfort or pain is normally stops at 10, it's turned up to 16 or 20, like it's just beyond the normal limits of what you think is the high end of sensation that you can feel. And then I would say the remaining three hours were some of the best three hours of my life. (laughs) Just incredible, the same thing, but the other way. If I would say the the most incredible bliss you've ever felt is a 10, it would be a a 16 or a, a 100, just beyond the scale. And so going back to that first hour real, we talk about purging. There's this release of a lot of the psychological and physical weight that I was carrying at that time. And so there's just a release of letting go of a difficult relationship that had ended, that I was still carrying the psychological weight of and just letting that go. And and there was a um, guardian spirit there in the form of a a bird half bird half woman entity that was very this magical golden guard and w- once I found that I had this guide to take me through the space and that was the shift between that real darkness and difficulty and then the other half which was just this incredible lightness and bliss that I I didn't know was was even possible to feel and I think that was a very certainly an ex- a very intense experience but now having worked with this medicine many times those two halves of just the full spectrum of what it means to be a human, like the incredible suffering and sorrow, and also the incredible bliss are two halves that often come back and not always in the same balance, but just the full richness of what it means to be, to
0: be a being. A lot of questions come to mind. For me, I think one of the challenging diff- things I've had with experimenting with psychedelics is just the unpredictability of it all. And I think that mm-hmm. is what maybe makes a lot of people who haven't tried it hesitant. And you talk about having to effectively take the good and with the bad. And there's common cliche of you get the trip you need, not the trip you want. And so I'm just curious, how did that uncertainty of what the experience would be like factor into your first experience? And how do you think about that going forward?
1: Yeah, that is a good question.
0: I would say largely at the outset, there was a
1: an innocence in, in not really just, okay, let's explore what this is about, just kind of a curiosity, versus now that I've experienced both of those ends many times. I think about it a bit differently. But I think one key thing that comes to mind is really the approach of why we're why we even working with these plants at all. And if we have this, we split into this dualistic Good and bad realm where it's like, I want, I want to feel good. I want to feel I want to feel the pleasure feelings, and I don't want to feel the unpleasure feelings. That's not really the intention that I that I go into this with or really suggest other folks go into this with. Like if you want to feel good. They're actually a shaman, I think in Brazil once told me like, if you want to feel good, drink hot chocolate, don't drink ayahuasca. <laughs> like they're, they're easier things to make you feel good. If you just want to feel good, uh-huh. the real, if, if we want to work with these plants, they're called teacher plants for a reason, right? They are, they are teachers and really the coming in to learn, what can I learn from this experience? And if I come in with that idea of learning, some lessons are are wonderful, like some lessons are just really, really blissful to receive and they're very joyful. And some are very difficult and painful to receive. And that's life in general. And if you reflect back on the biggest moments that you've, that have kind of leveled up your learning or your consciousness in life, there'll be some great ones. And then there'll be some, the difficult, the suffering, the loss. And so when I've never seen a journey where someone has come in with the intention to learn and the willingness to surrender to whatever that lesson is that comes out the other end that's not quite grateful for the experience and has really taken something from it. So that's the mindset that differs from the, the recreational or the hot chocolate experience versus the, the sacred plant medicine experience.
0: And so back to that first experience, you mentioned this being that appeared to you and you said it was a half. What kind of bird was it?
1: Yeah, uh, some kind of eagle actually I saw like a live perhaps a golden eagle.
2: Uh-huh. Um
1: and that it felt very very much like that energy. But anyway, imagine a golden eagle
0: combined with a human made of solid gold. Wow. <laughs> That's roughly it. And has that same animal appeared in other experiences? Not
1: really. I, it's it's been interesting cuz I there've been times where I have asked uh there're there certain times where you can it certainly feels like there's a, a sort of conversation, though, a nonverbal conversation that you can have with the plant. And I've kind of asked if that guardian is, is available or able to come. And the answer that I've received is that that being is merged into me, that that is, that is part of my heart or part of myself now versus at that time, it, it was a, a separate entity, which gets into some interesting questions of identity. But that's roughly where that is now.
0: So let's explore those questions of identity. How have those? Been for you?
1: <laughs> well, you could say that the spiritual quest or spirituality in general is really about that question of who am I, of figuring out who, who am I? How do I answer that question? How do I feel into the answer of that question? And as I've dug further and further into that, I felt that reality is really this multi-layered or multi-dimensional place. So to give some concreteness to this, I think most people, most of the time are identifying with their thoughts, their thoughts and feelings that arise. So if anger arises and you're sitting in a car in traffic and you say, I am angry. And so, you know, I am angry is myself being identified with anger. So I'm taking the the anger that is arisen as, as myself. And as we continue down this path, and this could be with plants or with meditation or with music or with many other modalities, there's a fostering of a spaciousness between those two things. So that thought of anger arising the feeling of anger arising, it's like, oh, the heart rate is starting to increase. Here is this angry thought arising. But not identifying with that is a leveling up, you could say, or allowing another layer of of reality to enter your, your consciousness where you can see anger or see whatever there is, where it could be boredom, it could be excitement or very specific thoughts and just allowing them to be, but not identifying with them is just a first level, at least in creating a separation between thought and, and self.
0: That's a great way to put it in. I know you and I both have been taught a, a number of lessons by Ram das on our journeys and He has a a way of putting it of, you know, you're not your thoughts, you're, you're your awareness of your thoughts. And when you see yourself falling prey to some of those negative emotions or your manifestations of your insecurities or whatever it may be, just go, ah, see, right? Don't get worked up about it. Don't let yourself get taken over and become those thoughts, but just say, ah, see, that's me. That's, that's fear. That's anger. That's love, whatever it is.
1: Exactly, and of course, it's a lot easier said than done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially with the, it's actually quite interesting, and I, I don't know why, but it's interesting to think about, like when you feel, at least when I feel positive or feel good, it seems to be easier to have that separation of like, ah, everything's great, everything's peaceful. But when there is depression, when there's sadness, when there's anger. They seem to be very sticky. (laughs) They seem to really want to pull me into identifying with them. Yeah, it's intriguing, the the human experience.
0: Totally. It really is, right? It's when everything's going great in your life, it's obviously very easy to be calm and meta, but things don't always stay that way. (laughs) Yeah. After that first experience in the Sacred Valley, were there any lessons that really stuck with you from that first experience?
1: Yeah, there It's interesting, having sat with this medicine many times now, it seems to me like there's almost a curriculum that people will download over time. And it's not the same lessons in the same order and not everyone receives all of the lessons, but there's these themes that come up over time. And some of them, like a lot of wisdom from an experience like this, can seem You have to experience it to understand it. Like it's really more about the experience than about a statement. Like I can say, everything is (laughs) one. There's only one of us here. And and we can talk about that and maybe get to some level of of understanding of that. But there's this difference between the philosophical spirituality of reading a book and getting the, okay, here's what the ancients say. Here's what the sages say. here, Here are the lessons versus... All of a sudden you feel oh, everything is love and you're like, oh, everything is love. That's the <laughs> that's the message I needed. So it's interesting in that it is really a practice. Like spirituality is is a practice more than it is a philosophy or something that we can talk about. And yet we love to talk about it. It's it's you know, I love having conversations <laughs> with you, and it's wonderful getting to spread this message and, and say these words, as long as we remember that they're all fingers pointing at the moon, as the saying goes. And the the moon itself is the thing. So <laughs> there's various learnings that I that I could go into. I would I would say the biggest thing that came out of that first retreat is really the death experience. Like I lay down and died, or who going back to identity, who I thought I was died, and yet I was brought back to life. Here I am, or here is some <laughs> some version of me. And so there was a real giving up or loss, a death, a real death of part of myself or a layer of myself or who I thought I was. And again, that goes back to levels of if I'm dead and I'm here, then who am I? <laughs> who am I? What, what are these layers of being? So again, hard to explain, but certainly worth experiencing once if you can.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. And just to give Listeners, a quick recap on my history with psychedelics. I um, had experimented a few times from call it 2018 to 2021 after learning more about it. And Michael Pollan's book had come out and Tim Ferriss had had a number of folks who were really leading the charge on this resurgence in psychedelics research. So I was curious about it. My day job is in the cannabis industry. So naturally a legal psychedelics Industry is the next logical extension of where we're looking to go into. So naturally business had led me to learn more about it as well. And so as I had some of these experiences, I subsequently was introduced to some philosophical concepts, namely the unified field of consciousness theory, which after I first learned about that, I'd say that was what really triggered my spiritual awakening I a couple of weeks later. Had uh, a transcendental experience on acid that really convinced me that there was a spiritual realm, that there were high levels of, of consciousness, and really I'd say changed the direction of my life since then. And so, anyway, since that time, which has been about six months now, I felt curious about ayahuasca naturally as I continued to research it. And a lot of a number of synchronistic events came together that led to me having my first experience with an ayahuasca ceremony about a month ago. And so Anyway, taking a step back to that first transcendental experience, one of the big takeaways I took from that initially was this idea that there was no death or to Ben's point that I'm simultaneously life and death. And, this, and that really relieved concerns i had had of death as well. And now it's hard to say as a relatively healthy 32-year-old, it's not like death was something that was constantly on my mind anyway. So it is always hard to say the counterfactual, but anyway, what I was trying to say was that that was an initial reaction, which I think is not uncommon for folks who have these types of experiences. But then later on, as I continued to take some lessons from that, one thing that definitely changed for me was my conception of time in the sense that I used to feel like time was so constrained and so stressful and that we were running out and that the climate was headed towards climate collapse. But then as I identified with this idea of eternity and this thought that my soul had always existed prior to and will exist after this biological life, then paradoxically you realize that all there is is the here and present moment. And it's really helped me to appreciate that more. And and like you said, Ben, it's all obviously easier said than done. And it's it's a two step forward and one step backward kind of thing. But it's just been interesting to me how that concept of life after death or eternity has evolved as I've continued to reflect on that experience.
1: Yeah, same. I, I've had a similar kind of journey there where the, I think to some extent, what like death defines life or where that fear of death is huge because the who we generally think of ourselves as being or perceive ourselves to being is like this little soap bubble, like flo- floating through space, and we can be popped so easily, right? Like you can get hit by a bus, and then like that's the end of your soap bubble, and and we're here for such a, a small little little blink of time, and that can be both terrifying and motivating, I guess. <laughs> but coming from that broader sense that you're talking about of of just seeing. This whole existence passing like a dream, like this wild collective dream that we're all having, and then you wake up and you're a new character and you're you're in a different dream, is wild. And there's another layer there where you enter the space. You were talking about the did you use the word unified consciousness, mm-hmm. kind of field of unified consciousness, which is which is what that the phrase I had said earlier, which is there, there's only one of us here recognizing that the, the observer, the one who knows, like, who, who is it that is watching the thoughts that are the, the emotions that are coming up and arising and the feelings that come up and they arise and they pass away. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's an interesting experiment. If you think back to how you felt when you were 10 years old, early memory of, of how you felt in the world And the body might've felt a little bit different. Like my back didn't feel so achy (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and, and my concepts around the world were different, but I feel the same. I feel exactly the same as I felt when I was 10 years old. And, and you can go, you can ask a 60 year old, a 70 year old an 80 year old a 90 year old, every person I've ever asked, oh yeah, I feel exactly the same as I felt when I was 10 years old. I don't feel old. And so like, what is that? That like, clearly there is part of us that is ageless that we all can tap into if you really drop into that, and the realization that that witness, and you can call it the Buddha, the the one who knows, or the Buddha within, or the price consciousness, and it's called different things in different traditions. But there's only one of it, <laughs> and it's you, and it's me, and it's it's the listener, and it's the trees outside the window, and it's the birds that are sleeping and cold right now, and it's it's wild to think that you as that one are living everything. You're living everything all at once. It's kind of the most overwhelming feeling to (laughs) to, (laughs) like, wow. And from that also comes a real, at least for me, comes a real compassion to realize that we're all just different, different heads popping out of one cosmic fabric and to do what I can in my position to do, to help the other cosmic heads that are popping out and feeling the coldness, feeling the sorrow, feeling the hunger, all, all of these things.
0: And so after that first experience in Peru, what was your next step on your spiritual journey? I came back
1: and after some months was interested and in, in curious about continuing that work. But it almost it sounds like the opposite direction that you had where you were reading text reading some sort of infra, you know spiritual or multi-layer consciousness theories and information that was out there. And then, you know, had had kind of experiences that then backed that up. I, I started with the experiences and was like, what is what is this? And I, it was not in any framework. It, it was not in my engineering framework of the world. You could put it that way. And so I became more interested in, you know, listening to these teachers. So, for example, Alan Watts came to me at that. You know, it, it's really interesting. We were talking before about just how there are certain times in life where you're able to receive a message or you're ready to receive a message. I was at Burning Man for a few days, like years ago before all of this and was in a tent where I was, some, someone was playing Alan Watts like 24 hours a day, like just his mm-hmm. lectures over and over again. And for those who, who aren't familiar with Alan Watts, he's a one of the early folks in in the fifties and sixties. And for the most part that took the Eastern philosophies of Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, and and then was also able to weave them with Christianity because he was also had a Christian background as a, as a, a pastor, I guess. So anyway, he was able to teach these Eastern traditions in a way that it was very accessible to the Western mind. And so it's a nice first teacher to people who aren't familiar with, uh, you know, if you jump straight into a Taoist text or a Buddhist text from a thousand years ago—it can make no no sense at all without the context of where that's coming from. But anyway, so you know, I was sitting there having this pumped into my ear, and it just—I'm like, who is this guy? Why are they playing these old tapes? This makes—it just went in in one ear, right out the other, like nothing. But after the ayahuasca experiences coming back, it started to make a lot of sense. It started to really click to actually explaining. Or giving words to some of the things that I was experiencing. So, over those next few years, I kind of speak of it as like my second PhD. It was, it was real, my real education mm. was going to ceremonies, sitting with the plants, getting these downloads of the curriculum, as we were speaking of, and then complementing that with various teachers and really finding that for me, the Eastern view of the world and the philosophy around it resonates very well with those experiences. And now now that I'm later on the journey, I can see that I come from the the Jewish tradition and I can see some of that now. I can see kind of the spirituality in there more than I could before. And I, and I think there's a core, a core in all of the major religious traditions that is a spiritual core that, that's kind of common to all of them. I guess that's all this Huxley said, the, the perennial philosophy, right? This, this thing that keeps popping up And so I see that that, that's absolutely there. But if you grow up in the culture and you see just the baggage that's been built up over thousands of years and all of these religions, including Buddhism and including Hinduism, you know, they've also built a lot of extra stuff and extra baggage, which can be fun, but it also can be distracting. And I think it's turned many people away and certainly turned me away from that whole path up until I experienced these plants relatively recently in life.
0: And you mentioned Alan Watts and one of the things that Alan Watts said that I've reflected on quite a bit is once psychedelics, once you answer the call from psychedelics, hang up the phone. And you know, what's funny is I was thinking about that quote a lot, particularly during and around the time of the ayahuasca ceremony. And then hilariously enough, I went back and rewatched our last podcast interview Hmm. And you dropped that quote on me, and I realized that was the first time I ever heard <laughs> it. <laughs> so, wow, it's kind of hilarious how it all comes full circle. But anyway, this is something that came up with my family and I over the uh, the holidays, and so I just would love to get your perspective on how you think about working with the plant medicines and frequency, dosage. You know, how do we? Benefit from these medicines, but not develop the habits that you see in a lot of Western culture with other substances.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a super interesting question, and I'm not sure that it's a global answer. But I reflect on my my thoughts and, and my path. And you know, one thing that comes to mind at the outset is there's this concept in Buddhism that says there's something like eighty four thousand dharma doors. And what what is a dharma door? A dharma door is you could say as a path or a doorway into the infinite or into the realms of consciousness that we're talking about that we're and every human is is able to experience. And so, you know, I view the plant medicines and each one really as its own little dharma door. And they're all every door is going to feel a little bit different and look a little bit different. And really, the the question for each of us is, what is my path? What is the right path for me? And so, my own path is probably going to be different from your path is probably going be different from, you know, every listener's path. And so I obviously have continued to work with these plants over the years and, and have worked with them many times. And so someone might look at that and say, well, what you just said, if you got the message, why, why didn't you hang up the phone? Why, you know, is it, are you addicted? Is is, is it not working? And so there's, there's different approaches. My approach is i think of working with the plants as as a sacrament uh, i think many people are familiar with the christian sacrament where you go to church every week and or potentially more frequently but every week and you take you drink the divine cup and you you merge with god you become one with the greater source and so working with the plants in this way is is very much analogous to that except it's, it's not just words you know you really feel like you're, you're merging with the infinite in that process. And so there's there certainly needs to be a period of time in between ceremonies with these plants that that we call integration, which is how are you taking the lessons, the learnings, the experience, and making that part of of every day, of every moment. And so for some people, that will be, I mean, it could be a lifetime. It could be one once is enough. I got the message. I'm gonna work, I'm gonna work on this for the rest of my life. I don't need to go back. And for other folks, it might be, it might be a year, it might be six months, some period of time where you you want to work with the lessons. You know, in terms of the the different dharma doors or different tools or paths that are out there, it seems to me that an ayahuasca, for example, is is very good at, at just showing you, blasting you to the other side of the door. And you can say, okay, I I see what. Can feel like to have meditated for an entire lifetime or to have gone to therapy for 10 years in one night. And, you know, you kind of get a real download. But I, I also have certainly met people that come back and for a week or two weeks, they're, you know, they're blissed out. They're, you know, they're, they're Buddha for two weeks. And then they're back in the game and mm-hmm. the same that they haven't internalized the lessons. So I, I do, I think that. There needs to be a complementariness of of these strong sort of tools that can really blow open the door, and a a sort of daily practice of how we actually integrate these learnings that work on it on a very daily basis. And I think mm-hmm. meditation is maybe the most easily accessible. Like anyone in any any part of the world doesn't require anything except you know you can be in prison in a cell mm-hmm. and you can meditate and have very deep experiences. So I think it's incredibly powerful. So I think finding the tools that work on a daily basis complement these larger scale. Okay, I, I really need a, a reset button and and really release everything I'm, I've been holding and come back with that blank slate mind. I think the plants are very helpful for that. And I think for each individual, it's really, you ask your heart, is this time? Am I ready for this? If a ceremony comes or is offered or appears in your life, the heart is a better guide to say, yeah, this is the right time versus the mind saying, okay, well, let's see, it's been exactly six months. And I said, I would do one every six months. So I'm going to go to this. I think that basically that that intuition, that heart intuition is a better guide than any rigorous schedule, just be
0: just for the sake of a schedule. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And that was definitely something that I experienced in my ayahuasca journey was, so after, you know, that first experience, that, that first transcendental experience on LSD back in June, there've been a couple more times that I've taken psychedelics that I've gotten just to that point of ego dissolution and at the last minute pulled back. And so, you know, I was thinking a lot about that going into the ayahuasca ceremony and I, I went into it thinking one or two things would happen. Either I'd see, okay, This ayahuasca experience is really what I needed to blast through that veil again and incorporate all the things that I've been experiencing and learning about over the last six months, or that won't happen. And I'll say, I'll recognize that I've learned my lesson from psychedelics for the time being and it's time to focus on other spiritual development. And that was definitely, it was definitely the latter for me. So it was really one of the most introspective experiences I've I've ever had and completely positive in every way, but not not at all crazy, right? All the, any any of the fun stories that you hear about, it was just it was pretty mundane stuff in the grand scheme of things, I guess. But like, at the end of the day, like that's what this life really is. Mm. Yeah.
1: It's super interesting how I think like you said earlier, there's that phrase that that she gives you what you need and not what you want. And sometimes that you know that is the fireworks show and the the feeling of going somewhere else. But I agree. I think a lot of the deepest messages are just being, you feel very embodied. You're, the divineness or the richness of every moment, of every mundane moment is a huge lesson. And I guess I'm curious to ask you now that it's been roughly a month or so, how does that feel? And how are you finding other doors that, that help you
0: get to that place? I am. And I think I had already been finding other doors, but you know, it's just my personality that like whenever I find something that I'm curious about, I just have to go all in, right? Like a hundred pedal to the metal, all in. And so then when I learned about spirituality and the existence of higher realms and non-locality of consciousness and all this crazy stuff, I went off like a crazy person. Like, all right, I just gotta know everything and try every experience and do it all right now, right now, right now. And and so I think just the ayahuasca ceremony is helping me say, hey, just take it easy. Like the universe is unfolding at exactly the speed that it needs to. Like it's, it's all right. That
1: that's amazing. Have you heard this story? I think it's a I think it's a Buddhist or a Zen story where a student comes comes to the master and says, I, I really want to get enlightened. How long will it take me? <laughs> and, you know, and he says, uh, it'll take you, you know, 20 years. So okay, what, what if I study? I'll just meditate twice as hard. I'll stay up all night. I'll do everything I can. Okay, it'll take you thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll I'll sweep the floors. I won't sleep at all. I'll take any any psychedelics. Let me <laughs> anything. So, yeah it'll take you forty years. So there there is something about and and I'm the, I'm exactly the same way as you. By the way, you know that <laughs> I think it takes a certain personality to to be attracted to these. Strong medicines, strong strong doors, yeah. um, and there is a certain recognizing that that desire energy, and just letting that observing that desire, letting the desire go because the desire is something that is pulling you into some uh, some future, some future realm of like, oh, I need to get somewhere, I gotta like go somewhere else. When of course the the ultimate lesson is. That's only now that, that that feature is just a little program running in our minds that needs to go sleep sometimes.
0: Renounce and enjoy,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So I'm curious, Ben, as you talk about these 8,000 Dharmadors, how has your spiritual journey impacted your views on determinism versus free will?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a. I think that question is like actually fairly easy answered if you're open to playing with the multi-level nature of reality and playing with those multi-levels there can kind of appear to be contradictions when you're looking between the levels and so i think there's part of me that is now accepting contradictions as just a part of the way that the world is and you know you can take the physics example of the part is it a particle or is it a wave like it's both a particle and a wave and that's the reality and that's what experiments have proved many times and so allowing the the yes and to things that seem impossible but to specifically talk about this free will so free will requires a doer a, a someone that is acting that is that has will and so you know from the standpoint that i feel you know again talking about identity in the layer that i feel myself to be this being this little ben being There is free will in that layer in that, you know, I feel like I'm deciding things. But if we can level up to the layer where we're just observing, you know, you can observe a decision, you can observe a decision being made in your body, right? There'll be discomfort in throat, feeling dryness, thought, uh, an image appears of water, like, oh, thirsty, thirstiness arises. And then like Ben goes up and gets a drink of water. And so from that layer, the universe just is on the Ben and the universe around him just kind of unfolded like a flower. And I'm just watching that flower unfold. And so in that layer, there's not really anyone here to make a decision. It's just a happening, that distinction between happening and doing. So if I'm on the doing layer, then it very much feels like there's free will and I'm doing. And then in the other layer, there's not even a doer here to really do anything And so it's all just watching this cosmic four-dimensional flower unfold. And you can say it's deterministic in that way. Like if we could sit outside the flower, you would just watch this magical four-dimensional universe flower unfold over time. And so in that multi-layered mode of being, it allows for both free will and determinism. And it just depends which layer you want to play with.
0: Yeah, (laughs) And what do you, and this maybe is hilariously going to sound like the Buddhist student trying to reach enlightenment faster, but I guess I'm curious how, how you view the goal of your journey or how do you know what that is from here on out? Well, it seems that it's it's
1: ever deepening. Like there's, there's not really an end to the journey. It keeps unfolding and there's layers and layers and There's a a guy who talks about the lines of enlightenment or something, but that you can start with this internal feeling of peace and and oneness that we're talking about, and there's certainly going to be reference points where you get stuck. And I I have a, a general feeling, though, you know, I haven't met every person in the world, that Every human has these certain areas where they're still gonna get stuck. You know, no matter how many years you meditated, no matter how great the Zen Master, you know, there there's certain things that still are sticky in in being a human. And I, I think there's always work in being able to to embody that moment to moment. Now there's kind of the that being of how I feel myself to be. And then we can think of that as almost as like a, a drop in the pond. A surface of water. And then there's kind of a ripple out effect of how am I living in harmony or not in harmony with that feeling? And, you know, I, I've observed in my own life that gradually ripple outwards. And, you know, I think I'm still in that process. I mentioned before this compassion of realizing that I there's a level where I am the other beings as well as, as just as I am this being and I'm experiencing their lives simultaneously with this life. And so, when you know, I think about that, you know, I'm, I'm a vegetarian. I generally am promoting that as, to other people to at least consider, from the standpoint of of non harming, the the principle of of ahimsa of to, how do we not create harm in the world. So you know, that's one layer. But at the same time, I'm not a vegan. Right? Cheese is delicious, for example. And so, there's a level where potentially I am still creating harm and I'm not living fully in accord with that. And how far do you want to take that? Do you want to only eat parts of plants that don't kill the plant? Like that's that's the full end of this is like you only eat apples and maybe... Pe- Actually, I could live on apples and peanuts pretty easily. That's, that's not <laughs> a bad diet. But you slowly just observe different aspects of your life and how how that is in harmony or not in harmony with that Truth, you're li- living the truth, and I think li- living your truth is, is a really challenging, a challenging one. Especially, you know, in, in our culture where there's all kinds of stories and myths and expected ways to be, and so how how to find your own truth in that is, I think, for me, certainly a, a lifelong process. And I think for most of us is. So I think it's a continual journey of how do we embody our truth in every moment, and that doesn't end in this lifetime, at least. Although hopefully, you know, along the way, we're finding more and more peace internally and just continuing to work on ourselves to find that peace.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you bring up vegetarianism. This is actually something I was talking about with my friend Mikey yesterday. He's been on the show and we both historically have always eaten meat, but think a lot about it. And, and I was reading Be Here Now yesterday and Ram Das talks about this idea of Nonviolence, where at one end eating meat is clearly something that's been murdered and that animal naturally has fear because it has some layer of self-consciousness and so it releases cortisol and and that kind of thing into the meat at its death and then on the other end of the spectrum you've got things that fall off the tree like strawberries and there's zero harm done at all and then you've got this whole continuum in the middle and that you could argue ad nauseum over what's ethical, what's not. And in today's incredibly complicated, intermingled world of organic, non-organic GMO, et cetera, et cetera, these are incredibly complicated and difficult decisions. But at the end of the day, it's just being aware that the continuum exists and deciding what feels right for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. It's certainly something that each of us need to decide. And I think, the biggest thing for me was the lifting of the veil of like, what is actually happening? And the, the more the more that I learn that, the more that I'm compelled to compassion, right? Like as a kid, meat was this thing that was in the grocery store next to Cheerios. And, you know, it's just, okay, this tastes good. I want this. And it wasn't until actually Michael Pollan's other wonderful book back probably a decade plus ago. What is that called about... Uh, The The Omnivore's Dilemma. Yeah, yeah. there's other great books, but that's a wonderful book and really peeling back just the bizarreness of the food industry in this country as just one layer of that, as as you see. And I think, I mean, in general, in this country, we're in in such a bubble about how the rest of the world lives, right? Like we're, there's a billion people living on $2 a day or less. And I mean, that's wild to consider. Like try living on $2 a day for one day, (laughs) you know, it's... It seems, it's seemingly impossible. So, just the more that we're able to look at what is actually happening in the world and then have action, our own action coming from, from what feels right, the more that we're able to do those two things, look at the truth of the world and the truth in our hearts. I think that's how we evolve ourselves into a, a better world.
0: I totally agree. And for me, the drive towards vegetarianism has been also a big part of my development of of my views of consciousness, where I think historically I felt that humans had some special level of consciousness. And so because of that, it was okay to eat animals and, and not, and that's how you justify it. But then as I've started to recognize, actually consciousness is everywhere in everything. It's just manifest in different forms that we don't understand, but who are we in our homo sapien hubris and arrogance to say that just because their experience of consciousness is different, it's any less deserving of life than mine.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's well said. And it definitely, this kind of discovery of realizing that consciousness has to be essentially fundamental to the universe, right? It's like how, it's actually interesting because you can talk to, you know, a physicist or engineer and you know what, what is the universe made out of and it's you know made out of these little you could say it's energy energy in different forms energy wound into little particles that we call at neutrons and and uh, ultimately atoms and they get built up into molecules and then say like, well where where is the where is the where is the internal life where did that come from where does the me the feeling of me come from and you know you either have to say it's like it's injected it's some some like magical thing that comes in Externally, or it's it's been there all along and the whole thing is consciousness. Mm-hmm. Like there those are really the only two possible possible directions to <laughs> go. So it's actually less magical thinking to realize that the consciousness is everywhere than to think it we somehow appears out of nowhere and there's an yeah. internal life out of nothing.
0: Yeah, it's pretty wild stuff. It really is. And it, it comes back even to this concept of Cartesian duality, which dates back to like the 1600s, where Rene Descartes and Isaac Newton, and, and I'm going to butcher the specifics, but effectively, they came to an agreement with the church because they didn't want to end up like Galileo under house arrest, where they said <laughs> science would be the realm of logic and reason, but the Catholic church would maintain control over the spiritual realm. And we won't say anything about that. And that legacy continues to persist to this day in our society when it's like, guys, you're just looking in the wrong direction. Go inwards.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And maybe I'm somewhat unusual in this regard and having, you know, like I did the scientific training. (laughs) I I have the PhD. I've I've done that. And it's a, it's a very powerful and beautiful way to to look at the world. And then wanting to not say, spirituality is the thing. And there's no relation. Like there's only one thing. There's only, there's only one truth (laughs) and it has an aspect that that is scientific. And then an aspect that is, that is the internal world that you just mentioned, which is really the, it's, it's an interesting question, but it's kind of the boundary of the scientific method. The problem with the scientific method is that we have to be able to do an experiment and have a result that you can then see or repeat and so now how do we find ways to start doing that in the internal world to have some sort of progress in an internal science it's an interesting question if you think you know i think we're we're just infants in that if you look a hundred years or 200 years down the line if our civilization is still here the internal science has a long ways to go
0: i agree with that but i also think there's a big element of conventional science has just absolutely Rejected the legitimacy of anyone doing any type of research in what's been deemed paranormal or psychic, mm. right? And, and that they get discredited as pseudoscientists. I mean, you look at folks like Terence McKenna and like Rupert Sheldrake and Bruce Lipton, and it's like anyone who says there's actually real physics that can be built in experimental data, even you know, folks like Deepak Chopra, the father of integrated medicine. You look at his Wikipedia page; it's one of the most just what's the word? Invectives I've ever seen. Mm. So I agree with you, but I think there's also an element of we need to get out of our own way and really figure out how we can at least start to approach some way of putting a scientific method to a lot of this type of stuff.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it's interesting. You can look at the the swing of the psychedelic pendulum over the last Mm -hmm. bunch of decades, at least to something that might give some optimism to there was a period of time where anyone writing a psychedelic based paper would be similarly ostracized as, you know, ridiculous, not science. And now all of a sudden the pendulum is swinging and it's appearing in all kinds of very esteemed journals and and institutions. So there is hope that the the opinions of the scientific community, you know, are always penduluming over the many people thought Descartes (laughs) and, you know, Newton were insane until they thought their ideas were amazing. So it it does change over time. But yeah, there certainly is a long ways to go.
0: Yeah, definitely a long ways to go. And one thing that you triggered in my mind when you were talking about this culture of science or and logic and getting, in a sense, almost getting in the way of, of introspection, right? And on the micro level, that's definitely something that I explored a lot in my ayahuasca experience, right? And so a quick background on myself, skipped a grade when I was in second grade, I went up to third grade. And so Always as part of my identity was like the nerdy kid that was, you know, a little younger. I was short for my grade two. So that is, I think, a lot of where I've seen some of my insecurities manifest over time. Right. And so, anyway, to compensate for that, but also just because I've always been an incredibly driven person, incredibly intellectually curious. I've always, as we talked about earlier, been very focused on high achievement first in the academic realm and then in the entrepreneurial realm. And so, One of the things that I recognized in that ayahuasca ceremony was that as I've gone on the spiritual journey, I've spent a lot of times working with various aspects of myself and different chakras and really left the seventh chakra, the the crown chakra, which is the seat of logic and reason and and felt, hey, you know, that I've got taken care of, like I'm, I'm good there, you know, I've been there my whole life. And I certainly recognized that I can use that intellectual curiosity as a means of self aggrandizement and of hubris, right? And, and that sort of thing. And so I knew that there's a connection there with my third chakra too, and, and some of the negative manifestations in that sense. But what I realized during that ceremony was it's deeper than that, that this whole indoctrination of having to know and think I know all the answers all the time and just how tied to that my identity has been. And recognize that that's really what was getting in the way of getting back to that place I had on the LSD experience, right? That it wasn't that I wasn't doing the right dosage of psychedelics or in the wrong set setting or whatever it was that it's like, I need to figure out how to loosen up that grip on my identity and then go from there. Hmm, That's interesting.
1: How does that manifest? Like if you're starting to say, dissolve in toward a as you said, a transcendental state, is there then a program that kicks in and saying, ah, I wonder if he's at stage two of our, you know, like, are you trying to, is there a voice that comes in and is modeling or trying to explain what's happening as it happens? That's exactly right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah. That, I, has um, that happened to you?
1: Yes. Yes. I would say, so something that was very helpful for me, over the course of the journey, the past few years, there is a period of time where I essentially gave the various characters, I could say the characters in my head or the, the characters that arise like big names. I named the different programs that were that were running and, and see and just kind of noticed the patterns as they arise. And this can happen through a combination of medicine and and just meditation, where where you just kind of see these programs arise and you notice that there are certainly patterns. Like there's a limited set of characters that are around for like 99% of the day. And so for me, there's what I call future Ben. Future Ben is the one that's thinking about like, okay, what are we going to say next? When is it time for dinner? What am I going to have for dinner? It's thinking about some usually near future, like something in the next few hours or 24 hours, and it's kind of modeling what's happening there. And you you can see that it would be, that is a useful thing to have in life, you know, some future modeling system, like we've developed that for a reason. But it's also just continually taking me out of the present, right? Like I'm not sitting here with you in this moment, if I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner. And so that's an example of a character. But it sounds like there's this analysis character, or actually, I also so I certainly have that same character. Sometimes I it's like a storyteller character. So Mm -hmm. it's in the journey, there's the storyteller that is thinking about how I'm going to dis- describe this experience the next day. Like <laughs> how am I going to talk about this at our integration circle and like have this great story about how awesome it is, which again is pulling you back from the experience because it's trying to craft a story as it's going. And so in general, just recognizing that those characters are there robs them of a lot of their power because you say, hello, hello, future band, or hello, hello, narrator, like nice for you to drop by. I'm okay right now, (laughs) come back later. And then, you know, a second later, it might come back and do the same thing or it it might not. The the more that you're able to recognize it and say like, it's okay, I allow you, I'm allowing you to be here, but like, I'm not going to identify with you. Like, go ahead, have a cup of tea and then pass on. The less often they tend to come up. So they'll like slowly over time, lose their power But yeah, I think if I could give everyone that ability, that's a wonderful superpower to have, like recognizing the characters that are inside your own head so they don't have so much power.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think that's great advice, not just for psychedelic journeys, but for everyday life. Yeah, most of our life, those characters are running the show. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, you said
1: something about the childhood experience from third grade or so, what that feels like and how you need to compete or compare with your peers and like that character, the, the character were like created around that. I mean, you you've recognized that, like that mm-hmm. that has been a part of your your drive in life is related to those characters. You know, seeing where these things come from, and and a lot of times they arise from childhood experiences or traumatic yeah. experiences or both is also hugely powerful. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, I've I've been on the same journey. I've had the, the same experiences.
0: And it's funny too how those childhood experiences are so profound and we just don't even recognize it anymore. And one of the other memories that came up during that ceremony was like this really early memory. I think I was probably kindergarten and I was with my best friend, Doug, and we were going around my neighborhood. Someone had graffitied something on uh, a building. And so we're playing detective, like trying to figure out who graffitied it. And so we're like walking by my house and there was this old copy shop that was there. And I saw this girl across the street who had, it was about our age. And she had this t-shirt on that had stylized text. And I was like, in my child mind, oh, maybe like Doug, look, like maybe that has something to do with it. But that girl had a shaved head and her dad was with her. He heard me yell that across the street and he started yelling at us. And he was like, look at what, look at what. And so, you know, in hindsight, I imagine she sick. And he thought that I was saying to him, look over there at, Mm. At this girl with no hair. And I recognize it as a child, but, you know, I was obviously scared because there's this grown man yelling at me. You know, I recognize this girl is sad and I want to go tell her, like, no, we, we're just playing detective. Like, do you want to play with us? So I don't know. It's just a really profound experience for a lot of different reasons. And it's just interesting that that's the specific memory that came up during the ceremony. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's a, Sad and beautiful story. I mean, it is super interesting how these memories and memories that that I didn't know I had. Like you know, if you'd asked me, I could not have brought up a story, the one that you just had. I've had similar experiences from being three or four or five that when you talk about them now, you're like, okay, you got yelled at by a, a, a man. But you know, when you're a kid, <laughs> that is a traumatic experience. Like I, I'm sure that that's something that that you really feel. And then you know you build some sort of guardian or reaction to, or you carry that with you, and so allowing that memory to come up. And all, all I want to do is give that little Jordan a hug, the <laughs> baby Jordan, mm-hmm. and say like, it, "It's okay, it's okay, man. Like, you you had a misunderstanding, and now you learn learn something for next time, and just yeah. give that younger version of yourself love and, and and allow whatever feeling is there wants to come up. Because it's so interesting how those, all these little experiences, they just, they collectively form our adult selves, that cast of characters, the cast of emotions that come up. So much of that is from early years.
0: Wow. Well, Ben, I mean, this has been such a blast. I've really enjoyed getting to talk to you about this. I mean, I think we could probably go on for three more hours of just about, anyway, but yeah. (laughs) Thank you you so much for uh, joining tonight.
1: Awesome. It's, it's been a pleasure. We got into some some great stuff. I hope it's interesting for your audience.
0: Absolutely. I, I certainly hope so, too. It was for me, at least. I hope it was for you. So as long as the two of us had a good time, it doesn't really matter about the rest of them. <laughs> That's right.
1: That's right. we we'll send, send us out on the airway to the collective unified consciousness.
0: There we go. We'll enjoy it. I love it. All right. Have a great evening, Ben. You too. Appreciate you, Jordan. Uh, take care, appreciate you too. Take
1: care. Bye bye.
0: Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Ben mentioned Aldous Huxley's book, The Perennial Philosophy, and I wanted to dive further into this book because it has had such a profound impact on me, specifically as it relates to my perception of the history of organized religion. Most people are likely familiar with Huxley's most famous book, The 1931 Brave New World, which portrays a dystopian future. Huxley's views certainly evolved over the subsequent decades, and I've come to view him as one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century. In 1945, Huxley published his essay, The Perennial Philosophy, which was a comparative study of mysticism. The book presents the highest common factor of all theologies of saints and prophets who had experienced a direct spiritual knowledge of the divine. In the study, Huxley examined the works of Christian mystics like Meister Eckhart, Islamic Sufis like Rumi, Vedic philosophy like the Bhagavad Gita, Buddhist philosophy like the Diamond Sutra, and Chinese philosophy like Chuang Tzu. Importantly, Huxley wrote this book during the heat of World War II, a time Huxley described as total war, revolution, and tyranny. It was his view that during that time of crisis, more than ever, humanity needed to be reminded of our connection with the divine instead of a false belief in the sacredness of hierarchical, political, and financial organizations. So what exactly did Huxley find in his study on the writings of saints who professed direct experience with God? His highest common factor of all theologies was summarized by Eknathiswaran in the introduction to his translation of the Bhagavad Gita. Number one, there is an infinite, changeless reality beneath the world of change. Number two, this same reality lies at the core of every human personality. Number three: The purpose of life is to rediscover this reality experientially, that is, to realize God while here on Earth. I'll reread those to emphasize the profoundness of this highest common factor of the perennial philosophy. Number one: there is an infinite, changeless reality beneath the world of change. Number two: this same reality lies at the core of every human personality. Number three. The purpose of life is to rediscover this reality experientially, that is, to realize God while here on Earth. I can say from personal experience that these highest common factor conceptions were 100% consistent with my takeaways from when I personally occasioned a mystical experience on psychedelics. And learning that these insights were consistent viewpoints held by mystics across time, geography, and religion have helped give me conviction in the truth of what I experienced. But that naturally leads to the question, why are these highest common factors of the perennial philosophy so inconsistent with our view of religious doctrine today in the West. Huxley's analysis could give us one clue. When choosing material to illustrate the doctrines of the perennial philosophy, Huxley almost always chose sources other than the Bible. Huxley did so because he felt Westerners' familiarity with the writings of the Bible unfortunately tended to breed reverential insensibility, a stupor of the Spirit, and an inward deafness to the meaning of the sacred words. Instead, he chose to incorporate the writings of Christian mystics, whose writings had the benefit of being less well-known, less prone to preconceived beliefs, and yet still genuinely qualified as saintly by the men and women who demonstrated firsthand what direct experience of the divine was like. Why, then, does the perennial philosophy differ so profoundly from the messages we in the West associate organized religion today? where a monotheistic, patriarchal god commands that you worship him as the only true god, otherwise be damned for eternity, and that heaven exists only in the afterlife if your actions on this planet are deemed good enough. I would argue that this is driven by three important factors. Number one, a handful of dominator religions rose to control the world power structure over the last several millennium and suppressed the mystical traditions that emphasized direct experience with God. Number two, that these dominator religions have, by and large, forced an intermediary between the individual and direct experience of God. That intermediary manifests in various forms, be it religious officiants, scripture, explicit suppression, and implicit suppression of conscious thought. And number three, that we continue to see this legacy of suppression of conscious thought in all hierarchical power structures that dominate society today regardless of whether or not those organizations are explicitly tied to religion. Now, coincidentally, shortly after Huxley published the Perennial Philosophy, the Nag Hammadi Library of the Gnostic Christians was discovered in Egypt, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the West Bank. These are considered two of the most important texts of the Abrahamic religions, both because of their age and because they were able to be translated by the archaeological community without intervention from the Vatican. They also both rang true with important elements of the perennial philosophy. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written about 2,200 years ago, while the Nag Hammadi scriptures were written about 1,800 years ago. Here are seven important subsequent events that contributed to the relationship between spiritual thought and culture that we see today. Number one, the suppression of the Gnostics. The Gnostics were an early sect of Christianity that focused on personal spiritual knowledge, or Gnosis, of God. They were influential in spreading Christianity during the 1st and 2nd century AD. However, after Uniform Church Doctrine was established at the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD under Emperor Constantine, there's evidence that Gnostic sects were brutally suppressed in the ensuing centuries the Gnostic views on self-knowledge of God conflicted with the newly established church principles like the divinity of Christ. Little record had been discovered of the Gnostics' writing until the discovery of the non Hammadi texts, at least records that were available to the public. It's interesting to note that Brian Murarescu has recently published research that indicates the early Gnostic sacrament may have been a psychedelic brew based on the Kaikian of the Greeks' Eleusinian Mysteries, a sacrament that was later switched to wine. Number two. The burning of the Library of Alexandria. First by Julius Caesar in 48 BCE, then by Theophilus, the Christian patriarch of the 4th century CE, and then by the Muslim caliph Omar in the 6th century CE. These burnings collectively represent the loss of the ancient world's single greatest archive of knowledge. Number three, the Holy Crusades. Between 1095 and 1270, military campaigns between Christian Western powers, and the Islamic Caliphate were waged over control of the Holy Land, Jerusalem. These wars helped to establish the interconnectedness of organized religion, the state, the military complex, and private industry. Elements of the tribalism, racism, and nationalism created within the societies of the Abrahamic religions during the Crusades continue to manifest themselves in the modern war on terror. Number four, the Inquisition of the Catholic Church. From the 12th century and lasting several hundred years, the Catholic Church set out to root out and punish heresy throughout Europe and the Americas. Jews, Muslims, non-Catholic Christians, and Native Americans alike were forced to convert at the point of the sword, and records of their traditions were systematically destroyed. Remember, both Columbus's 1492 North American voyage and Hernan Cortez's 1519 voyage to South America were financed by the Spanish Catholic Church. Those voyages and the ones that followed led to the decimation of native american populations most of the sacred writings monuments and artifacts of these traditions were systematically destroyed the inquisition also brutally suppressed practices of paganism witchcraft and the occult within their existing territory in today's parlance those practices would more appropriately be called shamanic rituals and included a variety of tactics including dance chanting music trance and consumption of psychedelic plants to attain altered states of consciousness Number five, mind-body dualism, or the rejection of the interconnectedness of mind and body as a form of scientific inquiry. In the 17th century, the philosopher René Descartes established the concept of Cartesian duality, which argues the mental state cannot exist outside of the body and that the body cannot think. This paradigm of thought gained widespread acceptance, and in the several hundred years after, we've continued to relegate matters of the physical world to scientists and matters of the spiritual world to religions without recognizing that they're one and the same thing. Importantly, Descartes published his Discourse on the Method five years after Galileo was placed on house arrest, having barely survived after refuting church doctrine that the earth was the center of the universe. So Descartes understood full well the consequences of challenging the church's domain of the spirit. Descartes' later work reflected evolved thought that included the possibility of a metaphysics that united body and soul, but the impact remained, and Cartesian duality became the established paradigm. Number six, World War II. An estimated 70 to 85 million people died during World War II, representing about 3% of the world's populations. The reasons those people died are multifaceted and nuanced, but there are three main drivers I'd highlight. The first includes not being of the proper race, like Jews, gypsies, and non-Aryans to the Nazis, or Chinese and Korean to the Japanese. The second includes not subscribing to the official state-sponsored school of thought, be that communism for the Soviets or Nazism to those under the third Reich. And then the third includes those who perished during combat while serving on either side as part of the military-industrial complex. Number seven, the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. 26 years after the release of the perennial philosophy, the psychedelics and countercultural revolution which Huxley in part created came to a crashing halt. Psychedelics and cannabis were included as Schedule I substances in the CSA, immediately halting all academic research and the ability for individuals to recreationally, legally, and safely explore consciousness with these medicines. This American imposition on psychedelics was then forcibly implemented throughout the world the next year when the United Nations signed the Convention on Psychotropic Substances Treaty. These unjust laws effectively placed a global stranglehold on any person looking to occasion a mystical experience with the use of psychedelics. This stranglehold persists to this day, despite the fact that psychedelics have been used by cultures and mystics all around the world throughout time as one of the most effective ways for experiencing God directly. Now that I've rattled off this long intro, I'll summarize the takeaways I'd hope to leave with you tonight. Number one, there's mounting evidence that the origins of all religions share much more in common than we've been led to believe. Number two, a handful of dominator religions have used organized religion as a guise for consolidation of power and control of conscious thought. Elements of these forms of control persist throughout all the hierarchical power structures we see in society today. And number three, once we reconsider the history of spiritual thought within this context, we open ourselves up to a world of infinite possibilities.